I don't think there's a battery in it right now, but it, what, it, what happens when you walk by, she starts singing. And it, <laughs> if you don't know it's coming, it freaks you out. Kelly, how's it going? Great. <laughs> Great. So uh, we got to know each other when you were at the American Conservative, and you were the um, director or something there? Uh, executive editor. Yeah. And um, we had done a lot of work together on on the never-ending war in Afghanistan and all of the other wars and all of right. that stuff, an issue that's very near to my heart. And uh, you have a new gig now. Yes. What are you doing? Well, I'm at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And so I have a, a couple hats there, but I'm, I'm working um, on do, building their brand because they're fairly new, about a year old. And uh, they're a think tank that's devoted to ending endless wars, um, sort of a demilitarizing U.S. foreign policy, you know, rethinking, you know, our whole ro role in the world. And they want to make this a transpartisan enterprise. So this is not devoted uh, to any partisan audience. We want to bring the people on the left and the right together because we know we have common ground, as you know, on this issue. So we have a bunch of scholars who are working on, you know, regional analysis, but also talking about grand strategy and, 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 and literally changing the military industrial complex and the way Americans see, you know, what our role is in the world. I was reading uh, an article that you had retweeted, I think today, about how it is that the, the entire industry that thrives off of war is funding the think tank industrial complex here in DC. And, and it reminded me of uh, years ago when I was still uh, representing the Tea Party. I was going on Fox News Sunday and they were gonna talk about the, the presidential election in 2016. But before they did, they were also gonna talk about uh, Syria. And I'm not an expert on Syria. Um, I, I now know where Aleppo is. Um, <laughs> Uh, thanks to nice uh, reference there. <laughs> thanks, thanks to Gary Johnson. Yeah. But uh, I wanted a quick study from sort of a non-interventionist libertarian point of view that was current to that week, and there was there was literally nothing out there. So I had to spend I had to basically do an all nighter to figure out what was going on in Syria because yeah. I, everything I would read would was advocating in invading Syria and putting troops on the ground. So it's it's exciting to me to see that there's um, at least one think tank. Yeah, that, that it's there may be really exciting. Now as well. And I think that you you really put your finger on it. I mean, this city, Washington D.C., is dominated by these um, pro-establishment, status quo think tanks that are fueled with defense money, with government money, with foreign money, and basically their you know their whole. Uh, being or or their whole entire motivation is is upholding you know the the failed strategies of the last several decades and there you know it, it has gotten to a groupthink in this town where we don't question or at least they don't question uh, whether or not that they have been propping up um, failed you know thinking failed strategy all these years because it's always been like that. It's been a, a consensus 
uh, approach and point of view. And so what Quincy is trying to do is is break through that and not only through scholarship and, you know, an intellectual foundation, but they want to go toe to toe with the neoconservatives, with the liberal interventionists, because let's face it, you have Brookings and CNAS on one side and you have Heritage and FDD on the other side. And, you know, they they might differ in their approach. They might differ on the countries they want to drop bombs on and inter- intervene in and meddle in. But they're really just up- upholding, like I said, that military industrial complex, the sort of the ferment of the last 70 years. And it's just they have different agendas, whereas we want to go toe to toe with either side of those and say, no, we need to we need to pull it all down and we have to rethink everything root and branch. I forgot that we are drinking tonight a tradition on on Kibbe on Liberty. And we were doing something new tonight. We're drinking Chardonnay, which I love, which is news (laughs) to my guests. Um, I talk a lot about beer and bourbon, but we're drinking Chardonnay tonight. For the guest request. Well, and thank you for the request of ice, which I, I'm sure your uh, viewers are you. looking on in horror, which is great for the Halloween theme, but yeah. um, bon, that's what I'm going to prefer bon right now. Judging me, yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. And I feel like we need a stiff drink because we're going to talk about some fairly depressing things. Yes. Namely, the, the state of foreign policy in American politics and the seeming utter lack of principled non-interventionists left, right, right, anywhere on the on the political spectrum, with, with the notable exception of libertarians. Um, but uh, an article that you wrote that just um, cemented everything for me, because I had noticed that, um, you know, um, at some point very early on, the never-Trumper movement and the neoconservative movement became one and the same. And I didn't see anybody, as someone personally that criticizes Trump quite a bit, I would never call myself a never-Trumper simply because I don't want to associate with, with people that seem almost exclusively focused on expanding the war state. Exactly. And, and trampling our civil liberties and all the things that, that you and I have been fighting our mm-hmm. entire careers. Um, and the, the, this is... I think one of your first articles for um, responsiblestatecraft.org or .com? .org. .org. Right. So that's our sort of news website, yeah. you know, our forward-facing uh, website for the Quincy Institute. So it's daily, you know, fair, you know, yeah. news articles, reporting. Why these four-star generals can't lecture us about morality and truth. And it is a pretty harsh uh, litany of all of these generals that have come out and and called out Trump in just I think I think shockingly political ways. I, I'm not used to seeing yeah. um, the military, retired or otherwise, getting so engaged in politics and and the way that Colin Powell and and the generals and all of these guys are marching lockstep, um, really speaking the sort of the, the radical progressive language of he's threatening our democracy. Right. Um, you know. They're not, they're not always wrong about um, their criticism. I saw one of the generals criticize Trump for um, sending troops, presumably, into Portland, Oregon, I believe. And I agree with that particular mm-hmm. critique. But, right. But, but let's talk about this. And I want to uh, lay out, you, you laid out some numbers here that 
are worth discussing before we get into the generals, because as you were saying, like there's no think tank that actually points out the fact that we keep doing the same thing over and over again. And no one says, isn't this crazy? But um, $6.4 trillion, that is the number presumably for the war on terror, primarily Afghanistan and Iraq. Is that correct? Correct. And all of the attending costs, whether it be veterans' health care costs. So that includes not only direct funding for the wars in country, but everything, you know, the, everything that's cost us fiscally uh, and our budgets, whether it be HHS, whether it be VA, whether it be, you know, community wide. I mean, that's that's a very comprehensive. I believe I, I got that from the Cost of War Project at, yeah. at Brown University. Yeah. So they include everything that that gives you the price tag right there. Yeah. Well, I bet you the number is even bigger because I when I saw that number, I was reminded of the ancient days when Tea Party Republicans were trying to balance the budget. And I was very much part of that movement. I'm I'm of those quaint days when we thought that balancing the budget and, and maybe not spending trillions and trillions of dollars we didn't have was a good idea. Yeah. And the Achilles heel of Republican efforts to balance the budget were the caps on military spending. We were never going to win that fight because yeah. the Democrats understood that as long as the Republicans wanted to spend endlessly on the war on terror and military intervention, um, they could just keep bidding up the price. Right. So you now have, we used to have guns versus butter. Now we have guns and butter. And butter. And Bec- more guns and surveillance and right. things we don't even know about. Right. And you also include, in, you know, within that $6.4 trillion number is are the other agencies that are fueling the national security state, which would be not only the Pentagon, but the Justice Department, the State Department, Department of Homeland Security. I mean, I, I used to look into these budgets and see, you know, wow, I didn't know we were funding military this or drone that or, you know, you name it, numerous programs or surveillance programs that had nothing to do with the Pentagon um, but they were all under the, the rubric of, of uh, homeland security or defense in general. Yeah. So it's just, it's incredible. Um, more important than dollars or treasure, 8,600 U.S. military dead, not counting contractors. Mm. And that's um, primarily Iraq and Afghanistan, I assume. Right. Both countries, and I don't know if I added in there the over fifty thousand wounded. Yeah, and I like you know I like to point out that you know the same injuries that uh, these guys and gals were getting in this war, they were actually dying from in Vietnam. It's just that we have a sophisticated uh, triage now, where we can get somebody off a battlefield and get them into uh, Germany within a few hours and start operating. And so a lot of a lot of our soldiers came home with multiple um, health problems that will last them a lifetime, and they would have died, you know, 45 years ago. Um, so when you say 50,000 wounded, that's those could be 50, you know, it could be tens of thousands of actual deaths uh, if we didn't have you know, the medical advancements we have today. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad we have them, but I just to put it in perspective for people that, you know, these guys weren't just coming back with, you know, scratches and, you know, um, you know, bandages around their head. They were coming home with brain injuries and, you know, limbs missing, you know, in many cases. So 
And we've we've talked about this before. The 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 state of the veterans' hospitals is is so horrific and unjust and and shocking. Even like you you take those two facts together, yeah. that we keep producing these these extraordinarily damaged soldiers, bring them back, and then put them through this this meat grinder. It's really Ugh. And they weren't prepared. I remember doing a story when we invaded Iraq and talking to veterans advocates. And they said the VA is not prepared to bring, you know, to take in the influx of these veterans. And wouldn't you know, just a few years later, they were getting all these guys with myriad injuries and also PTSD. And then you started hearing all the, the stories about the wait lists and people not being able to get an appointment or then years later, they were just medicating people and, and sending them on their way because they didn't have time to actually do therapy. It's just they weren't they weren't prepared, which is is really appalling, given that, you know, after what happened in Vietnam, you would think that they had all these years to get it to get their act together. Yeah. And they didn't because yeah. it's a bureau. It's a federal bureaucracy. And yeah. um, we know how that goes. Well, I assume there's a lot more money making war than there is. Yes. Cleaning up the right. damage. From war. Um, 37 million refugees and hundreds of thousands of civilians dead in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere since 2002. Um, the instability that this creates can explain a lot of the problems that are happening. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, 19 years on, most of us have um, moved on you know, and they're thinking about the war. It's not, it's sort of not in your face in the news, in the headlines. Um, what we talk about, we don't, you know, we're not, you know, as intimately involved in, you know, watching veterans coming coming home at the airports. But you look at the domino effect of our invasions and our meddling and our interventions, the drone war, which is still continuing, you know, we can go into that in places like Somalia, uh, we, you know, Trump has instigated, you know, uh, more, uh, you know, air or air attacks, you know, against uh, Al Shabaab and others than even Obama, who was really breaking the mold. But all that said, I mean, there's just so much that we've left behind um, for other people to contend with, whether it be the refugees in the refugee camps, whether it be the the environmental issues that you see in Iraq with um, all sorts of the you know toxics and toxins in 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 the, not just the earth but in the water. I mean, so you have birth babies being born with birth defects. I mean, this could go on and on, and we just walked away because we feel untouched by mm. it personally. Yeah. Well, we we don't even seem to think about it this much that much and you you wrote about this in another article that the uh, the train wreck of the one presidential debate never mentioned foreign policy no. as, as far as I remember um, and the vice presidential debate did a little bit but they fell back into their sort of stereotype platitudes right. without even talk it's, it's funny that the Democratic Party is now accusing the Republican Party of being isolationist yeah. It's it's all very confusing to it's me. It's very confusing. And and to to accuse Mike Pence, who clearly is a different guy than Donald Trump right. when it comes to foreign policy, right. he he probably falls much more in line with with more of a neoconservative ideology. Right. Um, but no one really talks about it because because we Americans don't don't feel that pain perhaps the same way we did in Vietnam during the draft. No, 
Absolutely not. And I think I think the the, the quote I, I most often hear is that one half of one half of percent of the U.S. population actually fought the war. And what people don't understand is that 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 small, tiny figure it, they they're still fighting the war. They've been redeployed over and over and over again. You know, you might not hear about it, and they're not in the the same harm's way they might have been in in 2004 or 2012 in Afghanistan. But these families are are being um, affected greatly. And I've talked with um, veterans' families, um, not veterans' families, but active duty members, and they say, you know, they just don't have any stability in their family, in their community life, because dad or mom is is rotating in and out and in and out. And it's just sort of like a, it's just like a bad drama for them. And they know in their hearts that the rest of the country is pretty much forgotten about them because they just assume that the war is over and everybody's moved on. But it really does affect these military communities. And that's why you see a growing number of I think it's a vast majority at this point in the 70s of veterans who are saying that it's time to come home uh, from Afghanistan and pull all the troops home from Iraq. So one would think that the military community, particularly those who fought, would be in most support of finishing finishing things up there. But they're just like, it wasn't worth it. Let's get out of there. And I, if that doesn't send a message, I really don't know what, what does. Yeah, but... The rank and file military support for someone like Ron Paul was was tremendous for, for that very reason yeah. because they they didn't listen to the politicians in Washington. They saw what, what we were actually doing on the ground, right? And realized the the, the hopelessness at at least and, and the d- destructiveness, yeah, of what we were doing. Um, but obviously, there's a big difference between the rank and file who are on the ground taking the bullets, literally. Right, right. And the generals who who conducted those campaigns. And I want to go through that, but I, I think it I think it's fascinating to me the way that the Biden campaign almost almost exclusively, not not hundred percent, but exclusively is gathering all of the war hawks in both political parties. And I'm not sure they're that political. I think yeah. they're I think they're either making a cynical bet that Biden's going to win, so they want to be there to to make sure he continues conducting these wars. Yes. Or um, that Joe Biden himself is is potentially far more aggressive on foreign policy from their point of view than than Donald Trump is. I don't know which is true, but there's there's a pattern yeah. either way. Yeah, there's definitely a pattern, and what I see is in 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 in. Everything you you just described is true, but I'll take it a step further. I think that they see Donald Trump as somebody who threatens, you know, their um, not only their lifestyle and their worldview, but their very being. And that sounds pretty dramatic, but when you think about it, when you look at Donald Trump, he comes in, he's an outsider, he wants to tear everything down, he wants to get out of wars, he doesn't talk their language, um, he doesn't uh, ascribe to the same uh, Washington hierarchy and food chain, he just, he just has grinded it all up, ground it all up, and they look at him and they, they're frightened, they're frightened and disgusted. It, there's a lot of snobbery going on there too, I would imagine. And so they want to go back. They want to return 
to the full-on embrace of the national security state, um, to the worldview of American primacy abroad. They don't want they don't want any talk about pulling troops out and renegotiating security agreements and 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 getting out of NATO and and supporting you know um, you know uh, strong men like. Uh, you know, Erdogan or uh, Viktor Orban, all this makes them very nervous. And so they see Biden as just sort of a return to the status quo. And I feel that the way that they've gone about it, which is ascribing all sorts of horrors to Trump, uh, that he's immoral, that he's dangerous, uh, that he's 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 basically ripping up the Constitution or he's destroying the Republic. I find that not only hyperbolic, but I find it disingenuous because I feel like their motivations are a lot more self-serving than that. And I think if the American people, most most Americans can probably see through that. But when the media is giving these generals and ascribing them to like near sainthood, you know, it just gets under my skin because I see the motivations, you see the motivations, but, you know, um, the media makes these guys look like while they're paragons of virtue, yeah, they're going after the bad guy, you know, like St. George the Dragon Slayer. It's so, it's so hypocritical because, because right. many of those same media outlets, when these generals were serving... Uh, certainly George W. Bush, but but Barack Obama as well. They would they would demonize them, and so like it's it's all a political game, and I'm not even sure who's trying to get at what. Right. Except it seems like through all of this chaos, the military industrial complex thrives. Right. Exactly. Okay, let's talk about some of these guys. Um, Admiral Bill McRaven, and. He was anyway. I'll let you talk about him because <laughs> I I think you know this better than I do. Right. So Bill McRaven um, took over uh, the Joint Special Operations Command from Stanley McChrystal uh, during the mid two thousands. I want to say two thousand eight, but I'm not so sure. Um, I I too have like lost the grasp of a lot of these like granular details about the war because we're so far removed or seemingly from it. But what bothered me about Bill McRaven, who came out full-throatedly against Trump, um, he was, you know, um, you know, basically a, a threat to democracy, truth, virtue, whatever. Um, you know, what bothers me is that he had been, he had led what we all, you know, call colloquially, you know, a kill team in Iraq. These were manhunters. Um, these guys would pick up detainees all over, uh, the battle space, throw them in these, um, jails and dark rooms and do whatever they felt was necessary, um, without due process, obviously, um, and then let them go because they, they were picked up because so-and-so is, is sort of like tattletailing on them or he had some sort of local gripe. You know, they're, these were these were people who earned their stripes, earned their reputation by manhunting. Yeah. And most Americans say, well, we were fighting terrorists and that's the way to go. But when you look at it, it was violating all of our American values in terms of the rule of law all over the place. And I find it just very hypocritical and disingenuous where somebody like that is lecturing me about truth and morality. 
so he goes on to become the head of uh, uh, JSOC in Afghanistan, where you had all of these rough riding, you know, special ops guys doing these midnight raids, kicking down doors, um, killing civilians in, in the crosshairs. There was one, there was one particular Gardez incident where um, they killed a bunch of civilians, in, including women and children, and then tried to cover it up and say the Taliban did it. And McRaven had to come in. I'm not saying he was part of that raid, but he had to come in and apologize, offered the uh, the locals like a goat or something. I don't know. I mean, it's all of these bizarre details of, of the war that people have forgotten. You know, then he went on to work with you know, the Obama administration basically identifying terrorists that needed to be wiped out in the new and burgeoning drone program along uh, with John Brennan, who we, we now know is a another MS, MSNBC saint, yeah. you know, um, so I just I, I feel I, I just I feel a, a bit the appalled. guy that curated Barack Obama's kill list is now a superstar on MSNBC, former right. CIA director Brennan, right, um, and the to to sort of wrap yourself in the Constitution now seems exactly because even that kill list. I mean, the ACLU had to fight tooth and nail just to get that that kill list out. Yeah. This wasn't something that the Obama proudly shared with the American people. It wasn't transparent at all, and it wasn't until almost the end of his presidency that any of this had come out. And then we find out people like McRaven and Brennan were right there as a side identifying targets um, for what I, I believe was an, not only an illegal but an immoral program. So I don't want to be lectured by him. Yeah. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal. Well, you know, you know, he was the, the JSOC, you know, uh, manhunter par excellence. So he was the first, I mean, highly you know, highly regarded as, you know, a manhunter, a tough guy, you know, warrior, you know, warrior monk, whatever you want to call him. He was in charge during particular um, gross revelations about a, a detention center called Camp Nama in Iraq, where detainees were, were, were brought in and tortured um, nobody did anything about it. It was investigated. The military denied it. When when McChrystal was brought up for confirmation, when he was nominated to you know be or appointed as commander of uh, Afghan forces, um, you know the media barely touched him on it. You know, and which was really appalling to me at the time. Um, because you talk about how the media kind of toggles back and forth, but they really do treat these generals with, with, with kid gloves. So there was some things written, you know, whether it be in Rolling Stone or the Atlantic or things that I was writing at the time, but it really didn't harm him. And then, and then he becomes the commander of our, all the U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And as you know, or, or you remember, Michael Hastings wrote this wonderful book about the, about, uh, the uh, operators he included or was excerpted for a piece in the Rolling Stone, the runaway general, which he that actually got McChrystal fired, mm -hmm. not fired for doing anything, you know, uh, you know, against human rights or, or violating the Constitution. But he made disparaging comments about the president and Joe mm -hmm. Biden. 
But in that book, which, you know, I've read carefully a few times, you know, he does, he does convey some, some real doubt about the mission in Afghanistan, you know, and it really becomes clear that he's fighting it because he sees it as part of this sort of, 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 of more about the brotherhood of the military and fighting it because of, you know, the, the, you know, as part of this separate world, you know, of the military, rather than the actual goals of what we were supposed to be doing in Afghanistan. Yet, he he, he pushes Barack Obama to surge 40,000 more troops into that country at a time when a lot of troops were coming back with severe um you know, uh, injuries, uh, pelvic injuries, because they were walking over IEDs. So I feel like he, for for political reasons, for self-interested reasons, uh, on behalf of the military, you know, he put tens of thousands of more U.S. troops into harm's way. And again, I don't want to be lectured by someone like that. General Michael, Michael Hayden, uh, former head of the National Security Administration, this guy drives me nuts. Not only after 9-11 does he lead the, the most egregious violation of, of American civil liberties by, by giving his blessing to the warrantless wiretapping program, he then becomes CIA director in which he defends torture. So on two fronts, you know, whether, whether it's sort of um, ripping away, you know, our, our Fourth Amendment here on you know domestic uh, soil but then he goes and and defends CIA operatives who are waterboarding um they're shoving feeding tubes down people's throats at guantanamo you know their sensory deprivation punching slapping whatever is going on there and he defends it and says well and then and then when he's really pressed by the committee because this all came out in the senate committee where they actually had reams of evidence this wasn't just a you know a bunch of human rights activists were contending senate committee on torture basically compiled all this evidence and 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 he you know basically contradicted himself he contradicted his own people and then at the end he said well this is all i'm i'm just acting on information from people below me and if you don't like it fire them so actually then he turns around and says well donald trump doesn't believe in facts well i'm not sure that michael hayden believed in facts either and to me torture um at the level that had been conducted in this war in our name is a lot more damning and egregious than some of the goofy stuff that that Trump has done or that he has been accused of doing. And I'm sorry, you know, I can't, I, I'm weighing both of them. I'm thinking I'm, you know, I'm not going to take, you know, um, you know, moral advice or I, I'm, I'm not going to look to Michael Hayden, you know, uh, for as a moral compass at all. James Mattis, otherwise known as Mad Dog. Yes. I don't trust anyone named Mad Dog, by the <laughs> way. It's just a gut instinct I have. What, what makes me angry about James Mattis is that he, he represents the revolving door in Washington and in the military industrial complex. So, you know, he goes from, you know, being a, you know, um, you know, four-star general, 
revolves into immediately into the defense industry, sits on the board of General Dynamics, takes money from other uh, big uh, defense contractors to give speeches. You know, he, he's basically cashing in, you know, on his legacy as a four-star general, which many do. You know, scores of them, according to one study by the Project on Government Oversight, just in the last few years, have cashed in by going into, you know, this, this, is, this is common knowledge. But the fact that he goes and then he turns around is appointed as, you know, a Secretary of Defense by Trump, in which he immediately starts advocating in the way they do for the same people that he was representing and taking speaking engagement money for, you know, while he was on the private side. And that, you know, what, you know, it, what best illustrates it is that this Congress actually grew a backbone at one point and voted to get out of the war in Yemen, meaning they wanted us to stop assisting Saudi Arabia with bombs and targeting and refueling because they are killing civilians there indiscriminately with our bombs. And Trump vetoed it. Why? Because Mattis and other you know brass in the military said, no, 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 we have to keep doing this. But some of those bombs were made by General Dynamics. They found the fragments on the ground in these civilian hell holes where they were just ripping apart school buses and, 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 and hospitals. And so it's just, I, you know, when you see a pattern of somebody who is representing the interests of, of, of War Inc., I called, and then they revolve back into public, into, into the public space where they're supposed to be representing the American people, but no, they're representing War Inc. Now he revolves back out and is, tell, and is basically out there crying in cathedrals saying how terrible the president is. Again, I, I, just, I just can't take moral lectures from people like that. The, the trend of, uh, um, we've talked previously about, about the president, President Trump's questionable hiring practices when it comes to, oh, yeah. to military advisors. And he seems to churn and burn through them. We, we've spent, uh, Rand Paul and I spent a good portion of the show talking about John Bolton, um, who other than his spectacular mustache has no redeeming qualities <laughs> whatsoever. But there is this pattern in the Trump administration where these, these tough guy generals go in, um, don't really get what they want, and then right. they leave. And they don't say they're leaving because they didn't get to invade Syria. They say they're leaving for some other reason. That's right. And as you know, um, good point on that, because an, another thing and I think I included this in the article was that James Mattis not only didn't he didn't leave um, because, you know, he was broken hearted over all those dead children in Yemen. He left because Trump wanted to get out of Syria and he didn't agree with that. At least that's the excuse he was given. I think, you know, when President Trump took over. Uh, I think he was awestruck by generals. I think he was he was overwhelmed by them, um, like many people are. But he has this, you know, inferiority complex to begin with, and I think that he was pretty much awed by their ribbons and their medals, and um, he was happy to bring them on because it gave him gravitas. It made him look sh- strong on 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 an area of policy that he had absolutely no experience in, and. I think down the road they weren't a weren't doing what he wanted. They didn't. They weren't behaving the way he wanted. Um, 
they are probably pretty condescending to him. Like I said, he's Trump is not one of them. And I'm sure that's come out. And in many ways, now I am not going to, I'm not going to say that Bob Woodward and his books about, you know, these, these meetings where Trump just totally lost it and embarrassed himself. And I'm not saying any of that's true or not true. And I have no special insights, but I think what happened was there was probably a break and there continues to be a break because Trump doesn't like people who look down on him. And Trump is never going to get his way fully in the military industrial complex. No president does. No defense secretary typically does. They usually just have to roll with it. And I think Trump is more comfortable with having political, you know, um, friends and people who don't stand up to him. And so he's been populating different uh, positions within the Pentagon with, um, you know, people who are outside of that orbit and that's making it worse. And for folks like me and you, it's not very good because the people he's putting in there are typically people who are just f- business friendly. So they're they're all about like, yeah, let's get those arms deals going, you know? So they're, he's not putting non-interventionists in there. He's yeah. just kind of putting yeah. people who are closer to his sort of Wall Street way of thinking. And it's created some serious tensions. And I think that you know, this election is just, it's just shown that 500, you know, military, retired military brass are signing, you know, endorsement for, for Biden compared to the 235 that, that Trump got. I mean, it's, it's literally an arms race. It means nothing because nobody really cares, but it does show you that more, more of these guys are willing to go on the record and on television, bad mouth, mouthing the president because they clearly have, they see the, the, the writing on the wall and they're like, this guy's got to go. Uh, one that's, uh, I, want, I only want to talk about two more guys because the list is <laughs> so exhaustible many. and we would yeah. spend like six hours doing it. But one that I find particularly ironic in 2020 um, with the modern progressive movement and what I would almost call a bipartisan consensus that the drug war has been a disaster. Not a consensus, but the uh, consensus with the American people, not not Washington, right, D.C. Right, exactly. But Barry McCaffrey, who was a drug czar under the Clinton years, um, he is now being celebrated as as a hero. Yeah. Do we not remember? No, we don't remember. I think, and I think, I think the Clinton people, on the most part, are happy that we don't remember because when you really think about it, you know, they were pretty hardcore. And this whole triangulation thing is real. And they did pass that crime bill in 1994 that screwed everything up. They were the champions of the zero tolerance tolerance policy. You know, Barry McCaffrey was not about, um, you know, uh, you know, rehabilitating, you know, uh, substance abusers. He was all for throwing them into jail. I mean, I'm sure he's come along over the years, but he was being paid and his agency was being funded with millions of dollars to basically wage a war. And that not only includes the domestic war against against drugs, but it also includes, you know, um, you know, the, the war on drugs in South America and Latin America, where we, you know, we basically funded the our own military to go down there and work with very sketchy, very questionable forces against other very sketchy forces and 
created all sorts of violence that we're living with today. When we see these migrations of people coming up and trying to get into our country, it's because of violence that we actually spurred on with the drug war. Yeah. My friends in Honduras who run a, a liberty-based think tank there, um, which is where the, the caravans that, oh. that a lot of conservatives were so upset about, they they talk about how the drug war in the United States intervention and meddling has empowered drug gangs <sighs> and destroyed the rule of law. And uh, we forget these stories and we, we think we don't know why people are coming across the border, but it was it was that, that crime bill and that yeah. war on drugs. right from Clinton and Joe Biden. Exactly. So it's, and I, go, ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just saying that I, I think, you know, MSNBC and the others are just banking on just the ignorance of their viewers or they're are taking their ignorance for granted that we don't remember what Barry McCaffrey represents or John Brennan represents or Michael Hayden represents. I mean, these were periods in this country where, you know, we really could fear that our civil liberties were, were being violated, that we, our constitutional rights were being violated. I mean, for real. And yet we have all of these hyperbolic statements about about Trump violating liberties, and yet and they can't really point to a single edict or legislation or or whatever order that would actually rise to the level of what we saw in the Patriot Act, for example. Yeah. So the I'm gonna age myself with this one, but I but I still have an axe to grind with Colin Powell because I remember Kuwait and not just because of the line in the Big Lebowski <laughs> where the president says this unchecked aggression will not stand. <laughs> um, and I, I remember Colin Powell being an engineer at the very early days of the war on terror and he is on his high horse right now yeah how dare trump be trump and i feel bad because i think colin powell of all of these guys had a lot of goodwill a lot of credibility all the way up until he made that speech in the un uh you know you know delivering the evidence and the justification for the u.s invasion of iraq that Saddam Hussein had WMDs. And not only did he do that, which unleashed everything that we've talked about so far here, but then, you know, he wrote a book afterwards saying he had misgivings about that speech all along. And Larry Wilkinson, who is his, you know, was his chief of staff, um, he's a great guy, he's a non-interventionist today, great speaker, will we'll con we'll confirm all the details of that conversation. He was concerned about the vigorousness of the evidence, but yet he was pressured by Cheney's people, Vice President Dick Cheney's people, to go forward with that speech. And he was a good soldier, and he did it. And for all, well, we love Colin Powell because he's a good soldier, but this is one of those cases where his good soldiering just, just basically um, took his reputation and, and, and flushed it down the toilet. And he knows that. And so he used to be considered a sort of a, a possible presidential candidate at one time. Um, and, you know, he, he actually kind of hedged for a while before all of this because he didn't want to be political. And now I think he just can't do it because of that baggage. And now it just seems like he's just thrown in with the never Trumpers. And 
I think most people, especially our age, are looking at him and going, really? What? We, like, we really want to take anything you say seriously, even if we don't support Trump. Yeah. But why would we take you seriously? I suppose it, it could be, and I'm not, I have no idea what his motives are, but it strikes me that, that being vocally and even hysterically anti-Trump right now is a great way to, to reimagine your reputation and your career. Right. And you know, get a contract with with mainstream media. Well, that, yeah, in the me- mainstream media, and then you think of all those other people who are sort of jockeying for a possible position in the future Biden administration, which makes me pretty nervous because I'm looking at the people who are surrounding Biden right now on his foreign policy and national security advisory teams. I'm looking at these never Trumpers who are currying all this favor with the inner circle of Biden. And they're all either neocons or interventionists or the people who were part of of the entire failed war policies beginning in 2001 until this day. Because let's face it, this all of the failure is shared by both Democrats and Republicans. And those are the people who are rising to the top. And um, it's, it's, it's Washington culture. They, they see an opportunity. And it, it, it kind of makes people like us sick because, you know, we're sort of rooted in principle. But these guys aren't. And that's why these never Trumpers, I don't want to give them the time of day because yeah. they're not even really Republicans. They're definitely not conservatives. Um, they're just political animals. And but they have this sanctimony to them that just it just oh it just totally gets under my skin. I can see being I mean, I have nothing against political animals. I mean people make their 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 livelihood any way they want. I mean it makes the world go around. But the smugness and the arrogance and the sanctimony just really just oh yeah. turns me off. And you 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 just ably described the Washington machine <laughs> that that keeps us in a perpetual war. And and I want to go back to the and kind of wrap up on on the mission of of the the Quincy Institute like it there does seem to be outside the beltway a very different environment where yeah. where people um I don't I don't remember the latest poll but people do want us to get out of yeah. Afghanistan and people do want to see a a more reasonable rational foreign policy um but you know they're not political pros right. and they're not going to spend all their time holding the machine in Washington right. to account and there's sort of a public choice argument here is like we keep doing the thing that the public doesn't want us to do in Washington DC because it pays well to keep bombing countries and the president has said and he seems he seems aware of what the american people yeah. want and he he keeps falling back to we got to get out of afghanistan we got to get out of afghanistan a couple days ago uh, Rand Paul had a conversation with him and tweeted out, the president has said we will be out of Afghanistan by uh, December 31st yeah. of this year. And immediately one of his generals went on, I don't know what, probably MSNBC. Probably. And said, <laughs> eh, it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So like, is is he really trying to get us out of Afghanistan? Is he manipulating us or is he surrounded by this machine that just doesn't move? Yeah, I think he's surrounded by this machine that doesn't move. And the greatest resistance to Trump fulfilling his promises to get out of these endless wars is the military and the accompanying blob, I call it, you know, the whole foreign policy establishment that is just, you know, 
completely focused on the status quo. I, I honestly think, and this is as somebody who hasn't supported President Trump, but I think he actually put his finger on the pulse of where people were in 2016. They were tired of war. Um, they were they were tired of seeing their taxes just go into a black hole and in 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 the federal government, the federal trough, and then off to these foreign lands, billions of dollars of foreign aid, billions of dollars, trillions in in fighting these wars, and then being told they're a failure. Uh, now we have ISIS. Now we have Al Shabaab. You know we have more terrorists in Afghanistan than when we started, you know, and it's just a fatigue and, and, and it's natural. And I feel that at the time in 2016, people were more concerned about the economy, the jobs, you know, this income inequality that was becoming more and more apparent. And Washington was becoming more and more removed and disconnected from people's real lives. And they saw this elite in Washington, this swamp. I felt like all that together he he really spoke for those people, just like I do feel that Bernie Sanders spoke for those people, too. And part of that was ending these wars. Now, you come back to Washington, they're like, yeah, OK, it's like a pat on the head. We'll get out of these wars. And then it's business of usual, as usual for the next four years. And even if when you have Congress who are supposed to be representing the people voting against the, the war in, Af- and, um, in Yemen and voting against, you know, Saudi arms sales, you know, the president pushed by his own military vetoes these things. And so I, you know, it's, it's a big disappointment. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I'm, I don't, I'm not gonna stand here and say that, that Trump has done what he promised to do, that, you know, it's all coming from this, you know, this, this, this part of his soul that's, that's meaningful. He does, I don't even care. I don't even think he, thinks about human rights um, or the values that are represented when we go off in these wars. I can't speak for that, but I can speak for this disconnect that you mentioned between pe- the people and what's going on in this this swamp here. Yeah, he, he, he's just trying to cut a deal with the American people. He's a deal maker and he he's smart enough to read where they want to be. Exactly. And, and at least that's true with him. Yeah. Um, but it's it's it i i think it's it's implausible to me that that he does get us out of afghanistan by the end of the year um i wish he would i hope he would um but yeah i, I don't, don't know. i don't know if it's it's logistically possible and i think with these uh, negotiations going on i think they're so fragile right now that i think him going out there and saying guess what everybody's coming back for christmas i don't think that helps i think if he does win another term there's a good chance these guys could come home. I do think so. I think, I think if he keeps pushing it, I I think that there is enough um, energy in it coming from the Quincy Institute and other groups, other interests in Washington that that have said. And I'm surprised at how many people are now acknowledging the failures of of Afghanistan in the foreign policy world that it, it, it just might happen. It, it might not, I might not have said the same thing a year or two ago, but I'm really feeling this, this shift in attitudes among the blob that they know that where the, they, they put their finger up to the wind and they realize that this, this the Afghanistan is a losing 
battle for them or whatever organization they represent. It's not happening. You know, the, the, Afghan, the Afghanistan papers that the Washington Post had published, you know, earlier this year, basically, um, you know, exposed all of the lies. And it sh- I think they had over 100 people had spoken to the special uh, inspector general uh, there off the record, you know, way the Washington Post got the, the interviews. But basically over 100 officials interviewed said it's a failure. Um, it's not going to work. Uh, whether it be, you know, the, the Afghan forces or the money we we're pouring into reconstruction or whatever, over a hundred and that yet they never came forward and, 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 and voiced these concerns publicly. It wasn't until the Washington Post actually exposed, you know, uh, the truths. And I think once that happened, I think it turned the tide here, but mainstream paper basically saying everything's been a lie. And the American people know that the veterans don't don't want to be there. The only people that want to be there are, is this military-industrial complex. Thank you for ending on a more positive note. <laughs> There's not a lot of positive news on this front, but the tide is turning. Yeah, I think I I do think it's turning, and I'm proud to be with an organization that is actually devoted to making those changes and you know challenging the blob. Ch- challenging the status quo, and they want to be transpartisan about it. So one of one of my tasks and my goals is to bring more conservatives into the fold. You know, um, people look at the right and they say, "Oh, they're all hawks. They're all pro-war. They're all pro-military." You know, they're conservative ink, as I call them. But there's a wide swath of conservatives who really are conservative. They want to conserve, and they don't want to see us wasting trillions of dollars overseas or our troops coming home wrecked and maimed and communities harmed by that at home. They don't want to see our civil liberties violated. You know, those are the conservatives that we want to get at. And they're, that I believe that that faction is actually growing. You know, they might be coming from it from a libertarian perspective. They're also coming at it from more of a social traditionalist conservative mold where they're saying, Localism is better. We got to start fostering our communities and families. You know, however they're getting there, they're seeing that the endless wars are just—they're—they're they're just not working. We we got to stop them. Even just an American strength pers- perspective, these these things right drain us and make us more vulnerable. They make us more vulnerable, and that's definitely borne out in all of the hot spots that you see today. The Middle East, even in Europe, you know. Um, just some of these ancient, archaic, you know, alliances we have are just draining our resources, um, but they're not making the troops that we have out there. And we have like 500,000 troops overseas right now in 150 countries. But a lot of them are spread out in places like Africa, where we do get ambushed by um, insurgencies because we're spread thin, our strategies are unclear, you know, um, we're there uh, to, to establish lily pads and footprints, but we don't we don't have the strength, and we shouldn't. We don't need to. We don't need to express this American primacy anymore. We don't need to be the American policeman anymore. But yet, administration after administration, Congress after Congress has supported this because I think they're afraid of stepping back. 
They're be, they're afraid of being called isolationists, which is a canard. Um, and so, and they're afraid to like, you know, uh, risk those campaign contributions from the defense industry as well. So there's all sorts of dynamics going on, but I think, un, uh, I, I think there is a fear of doing something different. Yeah. How do people find out more about the Quincy Institute and where do they find your stuff? So they can go online to the Quincy, it's quincyinst.org, and they can find my stuff at responsiblestatecraft.org, which is our daily news and views site. And so we're we're cultivating a a, a great group of writers on both the, the left and the right, some scholars, some scrappy, you know, reporters, but um, that's where we, we, we're, all, we're about a year old now. And so, you know, it, it's got that, that fun uh, feeling of being sort of like a hungry, you know, startup. Um, but I, I think we're actually making some waves out there. I mean, it's already got a great reputation. And I think it's because people recognize that this, this space is actually important. And it's funny, Matt, because I've been getting emails and I've, I've, I've seen, you know, tweets and, and other, um, you know, missives from the more, what you would say, mainstream foreign policy world who are actually talking our language now. They're talking about restraint, for example. They're talking about, you know, um, rethinking, you know, our foreign policy and American primacy, you wouldn't have heard that five years ago, even a couple years ago. So I think, um, you know, I think the, the Quincy Institute is sort of like at the spear point of some of that change. Great. Thanks for finally doing this. We, we waited too long, but thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know, this is the most important event of your week. So make sure you subscribe on YouTube, Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.